Hello, and welcome to Ben Yo Chats, my personal podcast. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. What do drinking games tell us about being human? On this episode, I speak to T. Wynn, a philosophy professor at the University of Utah. We discuss the philosophy of games, process art, and food writing. If you like the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Enjoy! Hey everybody, I'm super happy to have C. Tin Win, a professor of philosophy at the University of Utah. He's written a fascinating book on the philosophy of games called Games, Agency as Art. Uh, you should check it out. He's been invited to lecture at the Royal Institute of Philosophy here in London, and he used to be a food writer. So games, food, philosophy, what more could you want? <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So I heard a complaint about gamification recently. There's this app that we have in London, UK, where you can donate unwanted food and ingredients to people who come and collect it from you. And when you do, you gain stars and reviews. And the way you increase your reputation on this app is by playing this type of five-star review game. You have to review quickly and, and all of this type of stuff. And the person who was commenting felt she was being forced to play this game and it didn't feel good. And she was going to stop using the app and stop donating food because she felt that she was essentially being gamified. So is this a problem of over gamification where game rules have been brought in to substitute for some other social value or something and essentially our agency, our feeling of choice in it has been taken away. What's your view of this gamification aspect of our world? Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of, it's funny because you tell me this and I'm like, oh, it sounds great. And one of the things I keep finding with gamifications is from the outside, when they're described on paper, they often sound great. And then when you actually live with them, you, you start feeling something going wrong. So one of, I mean, there are two problems. The, the description you give is actually the thing that I'm not the most worried about. I think some people feel that there's this thing that the game is getting its like addictive threads into their brain and their will is being pushed against and they find themselves doing something outside like they don't want it but they have an addictive relationship to the game that's actually i mean that can happen but that's not actually the thing i'm the most worried about i'm the most worried about cases in which people go all in play cases where cases where the gamification is so seductive that you don't feel like the game is pushing you, but you've just fully internalized the point system of the game. And the reason I'm worried about this is because like, so, you know, I've, I've written a lot about games and a lot of people think that, oh, if you love games, you've got to love gamification too, right? Like people that love games love gamification. And I think actually understanding how games work actually shows you what's really creepy about gamification. So here's one way to put it. And you can tell me how it works out if this fits your sense of your app. Because I, I mostly think about this in terms of like Twitter and Fitbit, which are the ones I'm familiar with. Um, and, uh, you know, the metrics of publishing in philosophy. Sure. So games, for me, one of the great pleasures of games is they make life, they simplify the meaning of life. Right? They simplify the purpose of an activity, right? In a normal activity, there's all these incredibly rich possible values. Like I'm a parent, I'm a researcher, I care about climbing, I care about, you know, I care about aesthetics, I care about my children's health. And all of these things are one, often really hard to figure out how well they've done. And two, they are so hard to square off against each other. Like, how do I measure the value of like, a week in which I just do research versus a week in which I split time between research and taking care of my kids, and, right? But in games, for once in our lives, we have like an experience of knowing exactly what we're trying to do and know exactly how well we've done. And in order to do that, you have to simplify it, right? You have to make the values clear and explicit and mechanically accountable. So the things that really worry me are cases in which the gamification gets in us and it feels great to us, but it's done so by simplifying the target. And we internalize a simplified target. So I'm really worried, for example, what happens in Twitter. Like Twitter is a case where it seems like you might come to Twitter for these rich 
complicated values of connection and understanding and empathy. But if Twitter gets under your skin and if you buy into it, it points you at what Twitter measures and what Twitter measures is really simple. What Twitter measures is popularity. So what I want to ask you about your app, which I've never touched, of course. Not is, mine. It's that right. in, the, in the London, right. here we have it. I mean, in the, the, the one that you're familiar with. Do you think there's a, do you find a gap do you find a, do you find a simplification in that system to make something measurable? Yes, so there is. So it's this idea that you can trust someone has come down to this five star reviewness, right. and then also the speed. So there's this sense that if you don't put a review quickly for right. one another, that you're there. But to your point, um, the underlying intention is noble. Whereas I can see for something like. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, some of these things, the underlying attention, our attention could be actually, and we'll maybe come to this sort of outrage because we know anger, divisiveness pulls in eyeballs and eyeballs pulls in, right. pulls in profit. And maybe in something like Twitter, it's also slightly less obvious that you're losing your autonomy. I think that might be your right. argument. Whereas I guess for this app, it's sort of, it's also simple that you should be able to see through it. What right. I was quite interested in is that this person saw through it and therefore didn't want to play the game. Right. Whereas I guess in Twitter or something you could get sucked in because yeah. seeing the follower count, oh my God, I got a tweet which went viral, could have such a thrill to it that you're then playing that game and you lost the initial impulse, which is I wanted to see reasoned, rational other viewpoints to my own right. work. So I should just, two, I want to talk about two things. So first, the easier examples are the ones in which it's some corporation skimming your attention for money. Like, and people, people are really familiar with that. I'm actually worried that there is a logic of gamification that underlies even well-intentioned efforts. And that there, I mean, it's really easy like for people in a like academics in this space to be like, oh, it's capitalism, companies are trying to make money off of you. But I think. I think that there are plenty of cases where what it looks like is an entirely well-attentioned attempt um, to measure something in a public way and motivate people publicly. But the very fact that there needs to be a publicly accessible measure forces a simplification. Mm -hmm. So I've actually written a bunch of cases about, uh, uh, I've written a paper that is not out yet um, called Transparency as Surveillance. And it's about all these cases where you look at something like, um, where transparency, goes wrong. And the way that transparency often goes wrong is there's an overall attempt to get a group of people to do something good. And to get them to do something good, you have to create a quick and easy measure that everyone can immediately see and catch on to that can be quickly tabulated. And the gap between that and what's really important is often huge. So there's a really, one of the examples I've been looking at is um, uh, a lot of charity oversight. So it seems like a really good idea at first, right? Yeah. Isn't it great to have transparency and chart oversight? And it turns out for a lot of charities, for a lot of times, the the oversight measure they were using was something called throughput. So throughput is just the amount of money that people donate, how much of that emerges from the other end. And the charities just got ranked on throughput. Of course, what this means is, and, of course, the throughput measure catches really wasteful charities, but then once you get rid of those, you get a situation in which most charities are cutting, uh, are increasing throughput. And the way to increase throughput is to cut internal costs. And as anyone in any kind of organization knows, you can't actually make the organ, you're not gonna get the most organization, uh, sorry, the most efficient and powerful organizations if you're constantly forcing all of them to cut as many internal costs as possible. Uh, but once there's a ranking out there, right? Once there's a rank, once there's a ranking out there, then people seem to uh, seem to just respond to the ranking. But I've actually, I, I've actually confused the issue, I realize, because there are two things that we should really be worried about. I don't think anyone in the charity space has internalized the charity measure, right? Sorry, there's internalized this measure of, Right, the throughput measure. But there are a lot of other cases where people do seem to internalize these measures. One of the most, um, th the ones that are in my life, of course, are academic ones, like which articles get cited the most. And I think a lot or of times GPA. About, yeah, I was just about to say GPA, like. That's great point average for our non-US right, <laughs> people. Right. So 
GPA actually is one of the least useful measures of a student's success. Like there are all these other things that seem really important. Like how much is their curiosity gone up? How much have they, how much are they reflecting about their, uh, what they're doing and why they're doing it? How much are they enjoying or thoughtful about uh, their materials and what they're learning? But that's, that's very hard to measure, right? So, um, so because of the nature of large scale institutions, the most pervasive and salient measure that surrounds everyone is this is, is GPA, is your grade point average. And if students, if students internalize that as the primary goal for their education, then I mean, there's this enormous thing that's been lost. And one of the things that's been lost is control over what you yourself want as your value. So the, the big worry for me is that in a lot of these cases, we have these vast, pervasive, metrified systems. They're clear, they're crisp, they're appealing. Um, but if you internalize them, you don't figure out for yourself what you should value about the thing you're doing. Sure. That's my big worry. So it, it seems to me that that's a second order or an unintended consequence of simplified game systems or point systems that they miss a lot through the fact that they are simplification. They're sort of analogy to get to something, but they miss all of the nuance. Right. Uh, and we can see that. But I, I kind of got the sense that there could be something even deeper and darker than that, as in we know there's problems sometimes of over-regulation and these unintended consequences, although this is particularly something quite addictive. But I was thinking sort of trust is ailing in a lot of developed world democracies. And sometimes these systems seem to almost have, you could almost design them that there's almost, whether it's intentional or not, that is actually undermining a lot of our trust systems. And you could be designing these games almost intentionally in some way to, to, to simplify in this in a way that you know won't point people in a way that is actually most value add. Do you, do you think that that is also a kind of worry? That's almost a kind of, a almost deeper causal thing to, to where the system might be alongside a lot of these kind of unintended consequences because right. like you say Fitbit they're obviously aiming for something you know relatively positive and you get lost in the game I could see I could see that but then some of these systems might be even more pervasive like oh we go for GPA but we're not going to go for broadly what education might be that that seems to me even even potentially darker Right, so here's, here's, this is exactly, I think, the thing to be worried about. So this paper I was telling you about, um, Transparency and Surveillance, it started with this line from Onara O'Neill. So Onara O'Neill is one of the great philosophers of trust. And in her BBC Rife lectures, she has this paragraph that I think most people have ignored, where she says, yeah, most people think trust and transparency go together, but actually their intention. Um, and her version of the argument was, transparency asks experts to explain their reasons to non-experts, but expert reasoning is actually expert. So you're gonna force experts to deceive and make up reasons that aren't really theirs for public consumption. So I was thinking about this and I think there's something that might happen that's even worse, which is experts might become motivated to hit targets that are available and legible to non-experts. And I really do think there's this profound, I mean, I'm not a person to say, no, there should be no transparency. That's not a thing that should be that. I mean, transparency is important because people might be corrupt, but so, I mean, the way, sorry, I, I, I'm, it's early over here. I'm, I'm still caffeinating. So let me, let me try saying this again. So I, I think you can see this clearly in the early political philosophy. Attempts at transparency arise from distrust, right? You're afraid that your politician is gonna do something crappy, out of sight, so you make them be transparent. Here's the worry. There's actually a trade-off between trust and transparency. The more transparency you have, right? The more you ask your experts to align their action to a metric that's comprehensible and give reasons in a way that's comprehensible to non-experts. Right? So you bring expert action into view. So that will eliminate the possibility of corruption, but that's also going to eliminate the possibility of experts acting on expert reasons and expert understandings of value. I mean, I see this in my life as an educator, because a lot of the times what it looks like is there are all these things that I want to teach students. Philosophy class, right? Critical reasoning, thinking, curiosity, 
self-reflection. None of that is measurable in a way that's available to the legislator and the public. So what we have to justify our actions in terms of are um, graduation rate, graduation speed, and post-graduate salary, right? Those are really publicly available measures. And so the worry is something like, there's this trade-off, and the more, the more you move towards um, metrified publicly available systems, the less you have access to the wide range of expert understanding of their domains. I mean, I guess we're really far apart from games now. And the less less helpful it is for students. That has brought to mind two particularly important domains where I think we've actually seen this in action. So one is on the COVID pandemic response and the other actually could potentially on climate science. So uh, on the COVID response, we now have kind of quite clearly articulated that the experts decided to communicate in a way that they felt non-experts would understand, but which weren't actually what they were thinking or wanted to happen. Yeah, this is and a huge... That's happened over COVID, puzzle. and it seems to potentially be happening over climate. You do something because asking about climate science scenarios is way beyond, you know, so many people. There's like maybe 20,000 people in the world right. that really understand that, right? And they can talk about amongst themselves and maybe degree one. But so few people do, you end up with these simplified ideas, two degrees in 2050 or whatever it is. I'm, I'm kind of making it up to, to say that, which don't represent that whole entirety at all. And then we make our problems for ourselves. COVID is another, I think, example. And sorry, I cut you in that you're going to say something. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I thought we were going to talk about games and aesthetics, which is one side of my research. But now we're talking about the other half, which is the expert stuff. So. So I genuinely think there's a deep problem here that no one has solved. And that deep problem is the right, is the right balance in exactly the situations you're talking about. Because, okay, so my intellectual life was transformed by uh, a book by Elijah Milgram, a philosopher, living philosopher, uh, called The Great Endarkenment. And Milgram's view is that the primary epistemic dilemma of our time, the primary uh, knowledge dilemma for our time is that the state of human knowledge is so huge and so vast that no one can master even a tiny fragment of it, which means that we're in this incredibly complex relationship of trust and vulnerability. So Annette Bayer, who's one of my favorite philosophers, she, she's the great philosopher of trust that kicks off the conversation about trust in the 80s, says that the essence of trust is vulnerability. And I think here, here's a scenario, right? Any action we take, involving any technology or any science involves trusting this massive network of experts that none of us can actually ascertain for ourselves, right? So here are two things we don't wanna do. We don't wanna trust without any management at all, right? If you just trust whatever, you're screwed. There are gonna be con people, there's gonna be corruption. On the other hand, if you demand that you understand everything, that people be able to explain themselves to you, you're not going to have access to the full richness of science, the full richness of humanities knowledge, right? The, the fact that any interaction with science involves not only trusting people who you can't understand, but not even knowing who you trust, right? Because you trust your doctor. Tr- so he, the massive dilemma, I think, of our time is how do you manage who you put your trust in when you have to trust people that are beyond your comprehension and understanding because of the hyper-specialized nature of science. I don't know a good, and I think like people who work on this stuff have barely adjusted to this being, like a lot of philosophers who work on knowledge still are working under this frame of like, a single person should be able to know everything and understand everything for themselves. How do they know for sure? But that's not the right question anymore. So what what do you think from your reading of the state of the, of philosophy or even your philosophy, what does it have to say about this situation? Or is it, it's, it's not, it's, this is a question that you think they philosophers should be tackling, but are, haven't tackled successfully. There's, there's a really small literature in this, mostly in the philosophy of science. Uh, and it's, so this is a puzzle I've actually been obsessed with for a huge amount of my life. The puzzle of how does, this is a puzzle as old as Socrates. Socrates version of it is, if you don't know anything about a domain, how do you pick a good teacher? 
instead of yeah. a con person, right? Same problem with the scientists. So one, the closest I've seen, so some people think, oh, what you are searching for is good people because goodness is unified. I don't think the solution works at all because I think there are plenty of expert scientists who are assholes and there are plenty of good hearted people that are super woo and don't have the good science, right? So, so the, the, the closest answer is Philip Kitcher's answer, which says something like, you might be able to trace lines into more esoteric sciences from sciences that you can judge. So I know that I can trust aeronautical engineers because planes don't fall out of the sky. And so I can trace who they trust back. Right. But how that, how I'm supposed to trace that as an individual is really, really tough. I mean, the real answer is I don't think this is, this is an active, this is a real dilemma that people in philosophy are working on right now and people in science communications are working on right now. And I, do, I think it's kind of the dilemma for our era and I don't see a great solution yet. Great. Well, social scientists out there uh, listening and watching, this is a dilemma uh, for you to solve. Um, <laughs> perhaps looping back a little bit then in, into the games. Well, let's ask a simpler question. You've been playing and reviewing board games uh, for it seems uh, uh, many, many years. Can you explain the best kind of games for you? What do you recommend? <laughs> right, so, so I've been playing board games my entire life. Uh, my board game interests have gotten super esoteric, uh, but I can say a few things. So right now I've become, so I played all like board games, role playing games, computer games for much of my life. Um, right now, I. I'm seeing fewer computer games that excite me. Most of the computer games I'm seeing do the same things as computer games were doing 10 years ago, but with better graphics, more complicated mechanical systems. But a lot of them seem like addictive grind machines. So the board game world on the other hand is exploding with innovation. So I'm really interested in these very complex um, incentive manipulation games. So one example is Imperial. Uh, Imperial is a game in which it's, 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 the theme is truly nasty. It's World War One. The countries are at war. You don't play one of the countries. You play a shadowy investor changing your uh, investments in the countries. And you can control whichever country you momentarily have the most investment in. But the point isn't to lead your country to victory. The point is to get the most money in the end, which you can often do by dumping your country on the next stockholder or playing the alliance structure. So that kind of structure is really interesting to me. Um, one of the most interesting board games out there right now is Root, which is Cole Whale's game in which each of the sides is completely asymmetric and has different rules and different goals. And you have to, so one of them is like an industrialist trying to build, industrialist trying to build an industrial network. Another is a warmonger trying to conquer everything. Another is basically, uh, the proletariat revolution. And you have to watch these different sides play out with different mechanics against each other, which is incredibly fascinating. And do you think some of this innovation in the golden age, so I've picked up that I think board games are incredibly rich at the moment, but I I'm not as expert as you to sense that actually maybe this is a golden age of board gaming. Do you think that's in some way a counterpoint to what we're seeing on social media and some online that actually it's it's forced us to this is almost a counterculture to that was that too simple um, oh i don't i don't know what the i don't know the relationship to social media so i think i i there's a complex i have a so i'm seeing explosive um innovation in the indie tabletop role-playing scene and i think one of the things that's happened is it's really an age thing. So the so two things happened at once. One is this enormous flowering of board game innovation in the 80s and 90s, starting in Germany and leading to what we call the you know the Euro game scene. Um, why that happened is really interesting. One theory is that post World War II, Germany in particular became culturally uninterested in war games like chess, where you played head to head, and Germany has a really long history of family board gaming. I think the last stat I saw, German families still tend on average play more board games than watch TV. It's like, oh. so you have this incredible, instead of, so in America you have this, you have like a lot of crappy family games and you have this like incredibly esoteric war gaming culture that's built for hardcore hobbyists. 
But over in Germany, you have this board gaming tradition that is made for families um, and is also trying to find ways to make board games that aren't just war, right? They, they've been uninterested in war. And they seem to have picked up on this set of, so there's this theory that Sid Saxon, American board gamer, made these first like market manipulation, auction and bidding games. And so the German board game designers seem to have seized on this stuff and realized, oh my God, auction games are really interesting. It's a way for five people to play against each other and always be in the game instead of like one person makes all their moves. So there's this flowering in Germany. Um, and then people in America pick up on it. And I think the thing that's really driving it is a lot of people like me, my age, my wife, grew up as computer gamers. Now we're full time. Now we work full time. Like we have a family. Parenting, yeah. Yeah. I don't have time for an 80 hour computer game. Like I, like, I don't, Melissa and I both grew up on like civilization games, which you suck, you know, your life away. Your whole summer holiday is gone to it. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly. It's gone. And so now like, you have people that have grown, grown up playing games like Civ and, and Warcraft and Starcraft, but we, now we want to do it together. We want to be social. And so, so that's driving, I think, this huge market, incredibly rich, innovative games for people that grew up playing games um, and are a little burned out on, you know, 100-hour crafting video games. Anyway, that, that's, that's too long. There's, no, the, that's, the indie role-playing game is even more interesting. Yeah, well, because I think games reveal a facet about what it means to be human. So I, th I right. think this is quite interesting, and we can explore this a bit. Um, so uh, a friend of mine who's artistic director of, of Coney uh, did a lot of work with uh, Bernie DeCoven Blue right. on sort of game theory and games practitioner. And he makes the point that uh, uh, DeCoven had quite a lot of emphasize on play rather than games. And obviously there is this, this overlap. And a lot of what we talked about are kind of these, and your book talks about mostly striving games uh, for right. this. Uh, but I think one of the points that DeCoven was, was kind of making uh, was this idea that cooperative games or games which don't really have any point scoring or things which are involved in, in play are, can be more fulfilling or somehow say more about this. And I, I was interested, in what you think about play over games or, or even the making of games in play rather than perhaps even the games themselves. So this is, this is actually to me, one of the things that really pushed me to write this book because there's a standard view um, that, that a lot of people have that play is better than games, um, especially free and creative play. So a little bit of background. Um, what's the difference in games and play? Uh, I think the clearest version of this is for Bernard Suits. So Bernard Suits' uh, definition of a game is um, voluntarily taking up obstacles, unnecessary obstacles, for the sake of the possibility of the activity of struggling to overcome them. So any case in which you have clearly specified obstacles. So a, a game is really something where the rules tell you what you're trying to do, how you're doing it, and exactly what the obstacles way. there will be in the way. Often those obstacles are created by specifying which abilities you're allowed to use and not use. So for example, mm -hmm. soccer, the obstacles are created because you can't pick up the ball with your hands mostly, right? Rock climbing, my, uh, what I do, a lot of the obstacles are created because you're not allowed to use a pick or a helicopter. I mean, a lot of the times these constraints are so obvious that we miss them. For example, running a marathon has a constraint. You're not allowed to take a taxi or a bicycle, mm -hmm. right? That creates the kind of activity you're doing. So, and Suits points out that, look, play is something really different. His account of play was um, wasting instrumental resources, sorry, wasting resources that are normally instrumental for pleasure or fun, right? Um, and notice that there's this, he, he has some great examples. So here, he thinks sometimes you play games in this way, but there's some kind of games that are not played. So he thinks some, a professional boxer warily checking in because that's how they make money. That's a game, that's not play. He thinks kids rolling around with no rule, just wrestling in the mud or like flicking things around, that's play, but not a game. So they're different. And there's been a standard view that pure gameless play without rules or points or scores is the highest form. And my book was trying to
to mount a defense. Not saying that games are better than free play, but trying to say that there were different things that had their own different value. So games offer you creativity, offer you free formness. Um, sorry, pl play does. Games for me are the specific thing where the specificity of the rules and the affordances creates for you a specific sculpted experience of practicality. So the way I put it in the book, the, the slogan of the book is that a game designer just doesn't tell a story or create an environment. They tell you what your abilities are, what your environment is, and most importantly, what your motivations are in the game. Or another way to put it is the game designer sculpts the form of agency. Um, and then when you play different games, you pick up and learn different kinds of agency. And so this is, I mean, I kind of think like, here, Games are more structured experiences, and that's what art is, right? You could say, why read a book? Just make up your own stories all the time. But then you'd never read other people's stories. To do that, you have to have a very sculpted, structured, rule-laden experience. Similarly, you can make up activities, but you'll never experience an activity that someone else sculpted for you. So my, my view here is that games are this special thing that let you record and communicate forms of agency, and free play doesn't do that. Right? So th those are two really differently valuable things. Um, yeah. Games are more of a form of communication and communication is ruling. Great, no, I think that's, that's very clear. And actually I'm gonna come, hopefully we'll have some time uh, to talk about process art over object yeah. art of which I think that tallies somewhat. So I have a, again, a simple question then on that. What do drinking games about this or the designers of drinking games and I actually think drinking games in some ways do maybe create some sort of process art but but maybe with your idea of the rules that games that and game designers creating this world what do drinking games say oh my god drinking games drinking games are so important here's something really interesting i should say drinking games and party games are the most important thing in my book and uh there's really little scholarship about them. One of the things that frustrates me in the game space is how many people want to be like, oh my God, games can be real art too. And what they do is they create mechanically dull games that are like anything else you've seen, but they put important thematic stories on them about like big topic ethical issues. And this is, this is not exciting for me as the development of games as an art form. What's really interesting to me is the creation of new and novel forms of agency. So... Um, drinking games are fascinating. Uh, let, me, let me give you, I, I should tell here uh, for your audience who hasn't read this stuff, I think my favorite part of the book is a discussion of drinking games. So let me set it up. So for me, there are two kinds of play, achievement play and striving play. Achievement play is playing for the value of winning. Striving play is temporarily adopting an interest in winning for the sake of the struggle. So achievement play, you really care about winning. Striving play, you just basically get yourself to care about winning temporarily for the thrill of the struggle. Um, and some people are like, of course, there are two different kinds of play. And a lot of people, when I give this, when I presented the stuff would be like, T, you're ridiculous. There's no such thing as striving play. That is not a thing people can do. Achievement play is the only thing that makes sense. So I had to come up with an argument. So here's the argument. Consider the category of a stupid game. A stupid game is a game that's only, that's where the fun part is failing, but it's only fun if you're trying to win. So my favorite examples are Twister and most drinking games, right? The whole point of a drinking game is that you're really trying to do this silly thing. And then when you fail, everybody laughs together, but it's only funny if you fail and it's only a failure if you're actually trying to win. So drinking <laughs> games illustrate this weird capacity we have to get ourselves soaked so much in the attempt to win when even what we wanted to do was fail, right? But if we, if, we, if we intentionally fail, it's not funny, right? If you intentionally fall over and twist her, it's not funny. If you intentionally fail to come up with a candy bar, and my, so the dumbest drinking game I know is you just go around and everyone has to name a candy bar that someone else hasn't named. And <laughs> when you can't do it, you have to drink. And of course, it's funny because it's the silliest little task, but you're, you're cognitively just frozen in the moment. That's what's funny. Um, so yeah, drinking games are super interesting. I also have a theory that... Um, it would make philosophy so, a lot more interesting to most people if they did more philosophy on the games of drinking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah understudied. I mean, but yeah, you, I think you have a really good point. Yeah, the, there's also... So Kewa 
one of the great writers about games says there are four types of games uh to translate from fancy latin there's competitive games make-believe games luck games and then vertigo games so like kids spinning around and roller coasters like that's a kind of play um and i think drinking games actually are often a vertigo game like a lot of it is about the experience of so a lot of games for me about are about the experience of changing how your mind works right like suddenly my mind is focused on look ahead suddenly my mind is focused on uh, balance challenges and climate and drinking games directly change your cognitive experience of the world and often change your cognitive experience of the world while you're trying to do something it's not just being drunk it's trying to do a simple task as you get drunker and that gives you actually a direct experience of your mind in flux. And I think that's one of the really interesting things about drinking games. That's why I think they're a process art. Great. Yeah, actually, I'm thinking on my feet on that. So that's really fascinating. The only one kind of element specific to drinking games which came up, which I thought was uh, potentially looping back, was the only issue being that when you choose to do drinking or choose, say, to go ahead on drinking, at a certain point, do you lose a bit of autonomy because of what the drink does to you? And I <laughs> thought that was really interesting because to me, that was a little bit like Twitter. Right? At some point, you go in really good intentions, and then at some point, you've lost sight of it because you either have you know, the whole moral outrage thing or you want the follower thing, and you've, you've sucked in. Now, drinking games also have a, a nice endpoint because you, <laughs> you will always like either collapse or stop at some point, of which uh, Twitter doesn't. But I was wondering, is there where we can see that you might lose autonomy in something? Is that a danger flashpoint for you in any systems, uh, which um, you're thinking or, or, or not? Or it just occurred to me that there's a specific right. issue maybe with alcohol, although not with the whole sense of Vertigo games. They're self so there's, there's a bunch of interesting philosophy and rational choice theory about this. Uh, so I've been really interested, uh, influenced here by John Elster. Do you know John, do you know John Elster's work? No. So the, basically, I think there's a really... Um, simplified view of autonomy that says, the fewer the constraints, the better, the more the constraints, the worse. That can't be the right theory of autonomy, right? It has to be that you can take on constraints to increase your autonomy. So for one thing, if you believe that, then um, if you believe that the more constraints, the more freedom, then all governments decrease your freedom. But that's, that's, like, that's a ridiculous theory of freedom and autonomy because Governments can, through the creation of constraints, create new categories and new possibilities. So you can actually see this really clearly in games. So a lot of people want to say, okay, let me give you the simplest example. Imagine you're in an open field and someone proposes to put up some walls and a roof. You might think, oh, I've lost freedom. I could use, I used to be able to walk in every direction and now I can't, right? But the real answer is no. The addition of you've lost a little bit of freedom, but you've gained a different, more rich kind of freedom. You've gained the freedom of being having the choice to be inside or outside. So similarly, game rules work like this, right? The game rules constrain you in a certain way. And if you have this really simplified notion of autonomy, you would say like, oh my God, well, the game rules are telling me what to do. I can't do anything I want. That's destroyed my freedom. But no, you think, no, no, especially since the rules are voluntarily, are voluntary, the rules of basketball enable new kinds of action that never existed before. Without the rules of basketball, you couldn't pass. You couldn't dribble. You couldn't make a point. You couldn't play basketball. So, I mean, for me, Bernard Suits, who's my favorite philosopher in the space of games, what's interesting for him, what's interesting for me, for what he's doing, is he's saying that because games are activities that are literally constituted, they are made up of constraints, it's a clear case where constraints make us more free because they invent new activities we could never have done before. But I think that argument can easily be applied to governments. And I think actually one of the interesting things I find with my students is a lot of students who can't see that when you talk directly about governments can see it with games and then you can, right? Like you can't have, you can't, insofar as activities are created by, new activities are created by constraints, Games and governments both can make us more free if the trade-off is worth it. If what you lose is counterbalanced by gaining a richer and more valuable set of 
options. So similar, John Elster had a bunch of great examples about this. He, so his book, his most famous book is called Ulysses and the Siren. And what he says is, you think about Ulysses, right? So you know the story, Ulysses has himself tied to the mast so he can hear the sirens because he know he'll, knows he'll be weak of will. And literally, here's a case where the constraint being tied to a mast that he entered into voluntarily lets him have an experience he couldn't have had before, which is hearing the sirens, right? So um, what I would say is, given the fact that a drinking game is a impairment on your cognition that you enter into voluntarily and lets you have an experience that you didn't before, then if you did it knowingly and voluntarily, then it's an increase in your freedom. It is a decision that you make that takes on a temporary constraint that increases your range of experiences and your range of knowledge. So, and that would be a similar argument that people who take psychedelics would say. I would actually extend this further into a lot of creatives and artists, I would say, would tend to say this about art. So a poet would say, by putting these constraints on, I want to write a sonnet, I want to write a haiku, that you're actually more creative. Particularly then you say, I want to write a sonnet, and then I slightly change yep. what a sonnet means to me. You couldn't do that without the form of the sonnet uh, to be able to do so. And actually that's true across artists and painting. And segueing into, our other conversation potentially is around food. I would say this constraints around how we cook might be similar. If you can cook with anything available, then that actually isn't necessarily uh, a sort of cuisine or a cooking or a thing. But if you say, I'm gonna use salt, sugar, these type of ingredients, and I'm gonna create something from that, um, that says something more about the constraints that we put on food uh, to, make a, uh, to, make a, uh, to make a cooking. So I don't know, do you think philosophy says anything particularly about, about food or the constraints right. we had a, a, about food? And, and maybe let's touch upon, uh, I think you said, and I think I agree, that actually cooking either for ourselves or friends and family or cooking on a stage for a restaurant on people is a lot of the time a form of process art, sometimes actually ending in an object art as well, although we eat right. it. But it certainly seems to be a, a process art with a history and a culture yeah. and everything about that. So I don't know, comments about the philosophy of food? Is it right. process art? Do constraints mean a thing? So there, the constraints question and the process art question are really different. So let me let me let me do okay. them separately. Remind me if I forget one. So the constraints stuff is super interesting. There's actually a whole there's a lovely little conversation in the philosophy of art about this uh, that centers around a paper from Kendall Walton called Categories of Art. And a lot of people, again, there's, I think, a simple view that's like, why have all these rules about genre and form? Why not just do anything? And I think you said exactly what a lot of people in the space think, which is once you have, the rules aren't ultra binding, but once, once I mean, you can always, there are rules to what counts as a Western. The rules can't have sonnet. You, do, sonnet. you don't have to write a sonnet. You don't have to make a Western. But once those rules are there, then you can do really subtle things about like, so my friend, Matt Stroll, who works in the philosophy of film, convinced me that one of the nice things, but incredibly specific genres, like zombie movies or Westerns or Kung Fu movies, is that as with sonnets, when so much is fixed, you pay a lot of attention to subtle variations, right? And those subtle variations become incredibly important, right? So what Walton's whole theory was that when you fix certain, when you fix certain things, the audience knows what to pay attention to and what to ignore. So one of his examples was um, like, uh, uh, so you know a bust, like a thing, that's like just the head and the shoulders, the statue, but no arms. We need to know what counts as a bust. We need to know the standard bust doesn't have arms because otherwise you'd walk around being like, wow, there's a bust of Socrates with no arms. What a bold choice. What did that mean? What are they trying to do? But when you constrain the space in a certain way, you, you specify people know where to look for the meaning. Right? They know that when you break this little rule, that's really meaningful, right? They know that if they know that if it's a Western and then if it's a West, uh, sorry, if it's a Kung Fu movie and then the main character just stops fighting in the end, that something really extraordinary has happened because that's not part of the conventions of a Kung Fu movie. So, I mean, 
the view is kind of like, when we have these constraint-laden structures, they make the possibility of meaning because they give you the background against which variation can happen. Okay, that's, 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 that's a brief thing about that's constraints. Great. No, I think, I think they're great. I, they're, I guess they're underappreciated, aren't they? They're underrated. And also, they also, as your earlier point is, we don't appreciate them sometimes because they're so subtly there. A marathon has lots of constraints, but we somehow don't think about them because right. we, we realize it's all, about, it's all about the running. Yeah, I mean, the, I just have to say, people are always like, there's a standard argument in, that people are like, well, games can't be art because there are rules. And I think if you do philosophy of art, you're like, wait, no, that's, that's nuts. Like every single art form has rules for consumption that stabilize our our relationship. So here's a simple one. The rule for novels is read the words in order. Right. So if you read all the, if you were like, I read Moby Dick. First I had a computer program, alphabetize all the words, eh, right? You haven't read the book, right? There are every art form. I mean, I think one of my favorite examples, so I can't remember which philosopher gives is, um, if you were like, yeah, I had a great experience with Van Gogh's irises. I closed my eyes and I just, licked the back of a canvas and it was so musty mm. you're like no no you did not you did something you. but you did not experience that anyway, sorry side thing so i guess uh, so should we talk about process art now yeah let's uh, let's talk about pro process art well okay i have a i have a question which might introduce us to a little bit at least within uh cooking or something which is um is there any dish which you've been trying to perfect maybe trying to perfect your whole lifetime or feel you have perfected <laughs> and what are you doing with this dish or right. process? I, so it's funny, a lot of the times when you cook, um, I've noticed that there are, when people come over, you want to cook something new and exciting, but once in a while I get lazy and I cook one of my old simple standards and people freak out. They're like, oh my God, this is so good. And like my standards are like omelets, uh, Sichuan mapa tofu, uh, right? Uh, there's this really simple dish I found uh, an Okinawan dish of like turmeric, miso, bok choy, and tofu over sweet potato rice. And I make this stuff for myself all the time. And I realize it's not that I'm consciously trying to perfect it, like, but when I make this for people, they love it. And I realize it's because fancy new dishes I've made two or three times in my life. Like mapa tofu, I've made like a thousand <laughs> times in my life. And I think the reason a lot of us, I think a lot of us know that like, oh, I think a lot of us are very cosmopolitan about dishes. We cook something new, whatever. And then we always talk about, you know, like grandparent cooking. It was so good. There's something in it. <laughs> what was in it? Was that a lot of people, like my mom makes about 20 dishes over and over and over again. Like there, she cooks mostly Vietnamese Chinese, right? And she makes them. And she has like, I mean, when I talk to her about how she cooks, she doesn't have a recipe. But she knows all these like micro variations that are like, oh, well, if the fish is a little bit drier, you should, um, you should, you know, up the temperature in the oven by five degrees. And when the when it's a little humid, she she actually has like different spoons that she uses to prop open the oven like a tiny bit, right? And she has that mastery because she's doing that thing for over and over again. But I'm a dilettante, except for like the stupid dishes I make for myself when I'm lazy. And of course, the stupid dishes I make myself when, my, when I'm lazy are the best things I cook because I've made them a thousand times. I wasn't trying to perfect them. Um, right, so yeah, but I, 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 the, the, the dishes that I, mapa tofu is the thing that I can make best in this world. Great, so I, I have a similar, so my mom makes um, a chicken rice, a kind of, Singapore, Malaysia dish, although it's yeah. all around Southeast Asia, right? Vietnamese have one as well. And I think when you watch her cook it, in all the circumstances, it is a form, it is a form of art. And then, and then what we get. And then I think something that you alluded to is uh, what also sends it to me takes it to art for all participants, but also kind of one as artist or cook, is the state or the physical motion right. or the emotion that you have through this. Obviously when it's shared with friends or an audience or a wider thing, that also uh, percolates into say audience. But even if it's you know, your family, that's a, that's a small audience. If it's yourself, it's an audience maybe of one. Um, 
and I think, and you mentioned this, I think in a blog, but I, I agree that this is an underappreciated form of this art is what you and your audience uh, go through. So I have, a, I have a particular art practice, which I've picked up a little bit, which we call in theater, a performance lecture practice, which is actually, when I was reading your work, I realized was a type of process art because the art is often in the place between the audience and the performer. These, these type of performance lectures don't work because the audience has to participate. So there's a little bit of games and rules and it's arguably most successful when there's more of the audience or the space between where the audience and performer live, which I think is, a, is one of the elements of process art. And so I was wondering how you feel about that in terms of, of cooking and, and whether we really understand what, what we go through within that. So, we, so I actually, the stuff I've written about process art actually started in two different places. And I didn't realize until I saw in the end that they intersected. One is games, the other is cooking. So let me give you the different threads and then, and then we can talk about theater at the end. So with games, one of the things I think is really interesting is if you look at scholars and critics and people talking about how great games could be great art, they tend to concentrate on the fixed features of games that are like written into the game, like the script or the graphics or the music or the dialogue. But if you look at game reviewers and game players kind of in the wild, what they talk about is the gameplay. So, uh, so here, basically I started thinking that people, especially people trying to defend games as an art form or scholars were making, trying to do it by making games too much like fiction or movies by concentrating on the fictional or movie-like parts of it. So here's a theory. I think there's, there are aesthetic qualities in the object the artist makes. So, you know, the novel is thrilling, the movie is beautiful, the painting is amazing. And then there's another thing that I wanna call process aesthetic qualities. And those are the qualities that are in you, the audience member in interaction. So, so with a game, right? So take Super Mario Brothers. The object aesthetic qualities are the things that are in the program itself, right? The graphics, all that stuff. The process aesthetic qualities are the aesthetic qualities in you, the player, as you interact. So how it feels to make the jump just in time or slide or time the thing just right. It is the beauty that is in your body, your movement, your decisions. So my theory is that in games, process art, process, aesthetic qualities are actually most important in the natural practice. And then when people are worried about it being art or something, they concentrate on the object aesthetic qualities. They concentrate on the fixed qualities in the work. But I don't think that's what games are for. And one of the big things that makes it difficult is that in some sense, object aesthetic qualities are kind of the same between us, right? Like we see the same, if you're looking at a movie and the aesthetic quality you're interested in is like, say the cool jump cuts, those jump cuts are the same between us. But if, if we're both playing a game and what's interesting is how it felt to execute a jump, we executed different jumps. We had very different solutions. And so you don't get this precise sharing. And I think a lot of people in the art world like really want this precise, they want, they want to be like, we have to be talking about the same novel, but your playing and my playing are different. And trying to find the sameness there, I, trying to say that the most important things about games are what's the same between all experiences. I think misses out about what's really special about games. Games are emergent interactive qualities and the game designer's skill is in making this thing that makes for so many different people have these interesting aesthetic qualities that emerge in their own mind and their own bodies as they play. So that's the game side. On the food side, I had this thing where I was, I got really interested in, so there are some cookbooks I love to cook from like Marcella Hazan's Essentials of Classic Italian Cooking, where everything is just like elegant and lovely. And then like a lot of people, when I started to learn to cook, I would buy like fancy restaurant cookbooks and the food would come out good, but the process of cooking was miserable bullshit. And I think the reason is they were never made for one cook, right? They were made like, they were made for a working kitchen where there's like the person making the stock and, and then like, and so when you boil that down to one person, it asks you to do things that are impossible or incredibly awkward. And like, oh my God, there are 15 things coming off the stove at once that are like all need to be dealt with simultaneously. What's going like? So I got really interested in the fact that the cookbooks I was drawn to were ones that had this elegant process of creation. But when you look at cookbook reviews, they concentrated on how good the dish was, and, but they never talked about the process of cooking. So again, there's the same thing where I think actually, I mean, 
when I'm cooking, I'll often be cooking for an hour or two. Most of my engagement with the cookbook is in the cooking process. But what's most important is to find a cookbook that gives me an elegant, lovely process. And yet that's elided. I think, again, because people are obsessed with these kind of stable object qualities in the finished dish. Um, John Thorne has a really lovely comment here. So he's my favorite food writer. He's an amazing writer. And he says something like, we, beca we become hyper obsessed with the product of cooking and making it perfect, that we are willing to sacrifice pleasures and joys and aesthetic qualities in the process of cooking. And his version of this is a lot of the times people cooking now like shut their friends out and try to cook by themselves mm. to get everything right behind closed doors. But they actually have these like, second kitchens where they do yeah. the cooking and then present it in their main kitchen. <laughs> right, exactly. And he thinks like, what happens, what happens when you invite your friend in, you cook with them, you improvise around the cooking, you taste things together, you drink together. The final product might be significantly less perfect, um, but the, the entire process imbue, is imbued with action and collective choice and all these wonderful mixed social aesthetic qualities. Um, one of the... Sorry, so what's, what's really interesting to me, okay, so the thing I was going to say is one of my big worries these days about cooking culture is the rise of like the scientifically perfect cookbook that says if you do exactly this and exactly that and you measure that, then you'll get perfect french fries. And I'm like, yeah, but that was no fun, right? That was like me looking at my watch. That wasn't me smelling things and tasting things and stirring them around. It was me just like anxiously looking at my thermometer until it hit exactly the right point. And so again, I think not always, but for a lot of these cookbooks, they, are, they arise because we're so laser focused on the object qualities in the finished product that we're willing to sacrifice all the pleasure along the way. I mean, one interesting thing about cooking without a thermometer is a lot of the times the way you're judging it is by smelling the food and making a judgment based on the smell of the food. And that's incredibly aesthetically pleasurable. Yeah, and there's all of, all of the elements of your environment, your friends, the time, all of those elements which go into eating. Yep. Great, so I then have a question for you on tea, which is yep. how best should I make my tea? So I like oolong tea, uh, right. and I've paid a little bit of attention, but actually I've realized after reading some of your work, far not enough. So consider me um, uh, a great beginner. I've never really heard of uh, Gong Fu style. I like complexity. I like oolong tea. Uh, what should I do and what should I be thinking about making tea? Yeah, and this is, this is interesting because this is very processy. So Gong Fu style tea, um, common through chi uh, China and Taiwan, the way you do it is you take um, a gaiwan, which is like a covered cup, I'm on my side, uh, and you put what will seem like a lot of tea. This is like an eight ounce cup or less often maybe a five ounce cup, and you'll put in like a teaspoon or two of tea. So first of all, you need high quality tea. You need, um, you, I'll send you the link, but I, I have a little guide tea to this. Tea which shows that leaves, that you get right. actual leaves at the end, right? Yeah, well, first of all, yes, you definitely need something that has whole leaves. If you have chopped up, most of what Americans and Brits drink is the equivalent of particle board. It's like the sawdust from the bottom of the factory that they've packed in bags because that's the cheap crap. Um, so real tea should be whole leaves. Uh, some of it is rolled up tightly into balls and they'll open up. Um, and the way you brew it is you brew, so you'll put a lot of tea in a little cup and then you're gonna brew it for a short amount of time, but you'll brew the same leaves a bunch of times. So for example, uh, you, I will typically brew um, some of the tea I have five or 10 times. And what it looks like is the first brew is five seconds long. The second brew is seven seconds long. The next brew is nine seconds long. And the good Chinese tea is really made for this process. So you get to glimpse over, over time, the changing process, sorry, the changing quality of the tea. Like each little snapshot is a little evolution. And that's, that's what you want. That's the glory. And also like you're smelling it the whole time, you're adjusting in response. Um, so yeah, this is a case where I think 
the enjoyment is actually inseparable from the process of making. I also find it really meditative, like something about, I mean, I write a lot with my tea set up right next to my computer. And the fact that you're constantly like pouring a little bit in, making it up, you also are, I mean, I also think you are micro adjusting your caffeine dose because the first few doses off of a, a any tea have most of the caffeine and then it goes down and down and down. And so when you change your tea, Anyway, it's it's this complex, lovely process uh, that involves a lot of intimate interaction with some leaves, and it's wonderful. It's like so aromatic and deep and changing. That's great, uh, and we'll put the link in the in the in the blurb below for those who want to uh, explore more about uh, the tea making process. Um, great. So I've never been to Salt Lake uh, City or around there. If I had so five days, three days, or maybe one day. We should maybe this one day. What <laughs> restaurant do I need to 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 go to? Um, so, and let's and let's make it for one of a better word. Let's let's maybe cut out the the Western canon, maybe right. unless you think that's going to be the one. I'd, I'd be interested. But where uh, where where should I go? Or maybe we can have one from it. You can have one or two. Right. The the most so Salt Lake is a really good place for growing like. Uh, it's interesting farmland and it's real, this is grazing territory. So probably the cool, culinarily, the most exciting thing for people coming to Salt Lake, I mean, this is not a restaurant. Beltex Meats is a butcher and charcuterer that is, does extraordinary work. Uh, Cafe de Bola is this wild, intensive coffee master who does siphon service and he understands his coffee so profoundly and it's worth doing his siphon service. Uh, interestingly, it's like you can get normal coffee for normal prices or you can get his special siphon service for like 12 bucks or whatever for, and it's funny that people will freak out. People who are totally willing to pay like 10 bucks for a glass of crappy wine will not pay $12 for like an extraordinarily perfect coffee service. Uh, that, that's that, really actually, that actually feels cheap to me, $12. Yep. Compare it like to Master Sushi Chef and things like that. Okay, right. I will I will definitely put that on my list. Well, maybe when we're on Utah, what do you think is uh, most misunderstood about Mormons? Is, is there something <laughs> people kind of think and then we just really don't understand about Mormon culture? Uh, I don't, is, there, is there a Mormon cultural food? I suspect there is, and I don't know enough. About oh, yeah, there's so many jello and uh, scallop fried potatoes. I'm going to decline to answer your question. That is so fine. I'm fired. <laughs> uh, uh, let's, let's, okay. I work let's, at a public let's move over that. Utah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so maybe coming to the last uh, couple of uh, uh, questions is what makes uh, a productive day for you? So we, ha we had a little bit of it. It seems like tea is an important part, but um, uh, yeah, what, what makes you think this is, this is, your productivity or you're feeling most creative what's a good day uh, in terms of productivity for you so there so i think you're asking about creative productivity so i'm gonna leave aside the sludge of like grading administrative yes. email right unless you have some really good hack like one of my teachers always used to joke but i think he did it for real is that he would just get your essays and throw them down the stairs and grade <laughs> it that way because he says that was just as useful. This is your whole thing about it. He was not a believer in the whole GPA thing. It was everything right. else. So he says, I'm just going to throw them down the stairs, but I hope you got a lot out of the process of writing the essay. But no, yeah, creativity. So I, I went through a big thing in my life where at one point I was writing really boring stuff because I thought that was what you were supposed to like I got professionalized into this discipline and a part of the discipline that wrote a lot of very tiny technical papers that I ended up finding really boring and I was doing boring work. And so for me, one of the most thrilling things is figuring out a new idea that excites me. And so I'm most, the best days are when I actually managed to grapple together some big connection between different ideas. And I, I tend to think it's really important to I find it really easy to bog down in boring ideas that you can write a little bit of something about. So here's my productivity tip for creative writers. I often write down every single weird, bizarre idea I have, and then I'll sit down and try to develop every single one, at least a little bit. Like into like this might mean just mean like taking a one sentence scribble and trying to turn it into like a few paragraphs. 
or like taking a few paragraphs and trying to turn it into an outline for a paper. And what I often find is the really bizarre ideas that seem silly, if I give them a little life, if I breathe into them, they'll suddenly flourish. And so what I often do is instead of immediately for each idea, picking which one seems most likely to work, I will try to breathe life into everything and then sit back and be like, wait, which ones are the most interesting? And what this looks like for me is I often have a notebook with like 50 different ideas. And then I will try to turn each of them into like a couple paragraphs. And in the end, I'll end up writing papers out of two or three of them, but it's not the ones I expected at the beginning. It's the ones that I let sit around for a few weeks and try to expand and let sit around again. And then suddenly like, oh, that idea isn't silly. That actually is really interesting. Most of my good ideas started as like, silly, probably drunk, one-off jokes that became, that lived. Cool, so don't kill off the weird impulses. Don't, nurture but also and develop don't, them. Yeah. yeah, nurture and develop, and then, then kill them later. Yeah, like, yeah, <laughs> we kind of be like, you know what, it, that was too crazy, but yeah, yeah. or. Don't, <laughs> the idea is not right turn everything, but give everything a chance for a while. Yeah, give it a chance to breathe. Great, and do you have any advice for well, I guess you could give advice to young food writers or also young social scientists or philosophers about what, uh, the, what they should be thinking or doing or questions or curiosities they should be exploring. Right. Um, totally different answers for food writers and philosophers. Um, food writers is curious. One of the things that I... There's been a transition from a more professional food writer class who like worked for newspapers to a very blog written, blog driven food writing world. And one of my concerns with the blog written food writing world is. They um, gamified. <laughs> well, that's part of it, but I'm not sure how to say this politely, but a lot of people from that space don't spend a lot of time researching the cuisines and learning about the details of the cuisines understanding language of the food that they're talking about yeah and so what you get is a tendency to i see not all but a very large number of the modern food blogging instagram world easily captured by um i mean my very americanized foods that are like that have been tuned for like hipster instagram ability um and missing out on the weirder stuff because you, because people don't, I mean, I thought as a food writer, a lot of my mission was education. So I had to educate myself first, right? Like if people need, need to understand about how to appreciate Sichuan cuisine and it's really different for American cuisine, then you need to communicate the difference of that sensibility so people can learn and to do that. You have to learn yourself. And that's, that's actually a fair amount of work. Um, so that's the food writing stuff for philosophy. Oh man, philosophy is, the humanities are not a comfortable place to be in professionally right now. Like the world is against them. I think the only thing I can really say is that the world is huge and full of incredibly interesting topics. And a lot of fields hyper-specialize in a very narrow set. But if you like keep looking around for the weird, interesting stuff at the borders, I don't know. You might do something as bizarre as writing an entire book based on anal analyzing the philosophy of drinking games and people might find that interesting. And the world would be a better place for it. So <laughs> follow the weirdness, I guess, yep. uh, uh, which then becomes not as weird as you might think. So great. So thank you so much. Please check out uh, uh, the book, which I have links um, below. And thank you very much for coming to chat with me. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe.